cash. How do you pay these guys? Straight cash, homie. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Straight Cash Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Graff, thrilled to be joined once again by Arif Hassan, my colleague at the Vikings on the Athletic Beat. It was a busy weekend for the Vikings, who trimmed their roster from 90 to 53 players, and now get set for the season opener against the Falcons this weekend, so we've got a packed episode. We'll talk about the roster, some of the biggest storylines, and look ahead at the opener. But first, Arif, you posted on Monday some takeaways from the roster that I want to go over with you. Let's start with wide receiver. The Vikings kept only four at the position, which is a bit of a surprise, uh, though I guess it's fair to concede here that you did accurately predict that on our final 53-man projection. Uh, but that said, what is your impression of where things stand? Are, are you surprised that it seems, at least for now, that they're entering the season with four wide receivers? If they do decide to add a fifth, are there any free agents that intrigue you? Where are you at with that whole situation? Yeah, well, I mean, part of the caveat of having four receivers on the roster is that I figured that they would add one through waivers, that there were <laughs> a number of receivers that'd be made available, and they still haven't done that. Uh, obviously, you know, the waiver period is over, so they're not going to add anyone via waivers, but they could add, you know, a terminated veteran or somebody who's cleared waivers. And there's a number of players um, that, you know, could strike their interest, but, I mean, that the pool keeps diminishing because... Right. You know, other teams are, are signing some of these very same players. And some of the players were cut just to be re-signed in order to make the contract situation a little friendlier for their team. So, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd be kind of interested in, or I would have been interested in Jerron Brown. I heard he just signed with the Cleveland Browns. Um, so uh, <laughs> there goes that. But, you know, there's a couple of players that have a little bit of experience with Kirk Cousins. None I'm overly excited about, but Pierre Garçon, I think, is still available. Uh, you've got Josh Doxson, who is basically, you know, Laquan Treadwell with a couple more yards. Uh, and then, That's a great description, by the way. Uh, not necessarily for the player. Yeah, right. But. It it's not a great selling point. And then there's Terrell Pryor. I guess he has experience with Cousins. I don't think that experience was particularly good. Um, but there's a number of uh, undrafted free agents that, you know, maybe they won't help immediately, but, you know, they might be better developmental options than what the Vikings have in their practice squad. People like... You know, Penny Hart, uh, former Viking, Mark and Michelle. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just a, a couple of interesting... Jazz Ferguson, I think, was was just uh, waived from Seattle. Uh, players that have kind of a profile that would supplement what the Vikings have at receiver, um, but, you know, would would probably not be overly talented for a third receiver. And it's kind of interesting, too, that as they filled out their practice squad, they waited until the 10th and final spot on the practice squad before even signing any wide receiver, eventually adding Davion Davis. I think part of what they hoped to do anyway was, as Mike Hughes still recovers from his ACL injury and, and all indications are that that's still going well, uh, though he may not be ready for the first game, maybe the second game, and so... They add the roster, you know, they, they come in with more cornerbacks than I think either of us projected, in part because of how the corners struggled. Um, and I think that their goal probably would have been to have Brandon Zilstra on the practice squad. Then whenever Hughes is healthy, they could cut Chris Boyd or Mark Fields or whomever to make room for Zilstra in a fifth wide receiver spot. But uh, since league rules go that the Vikings have to send one player to the Carolina Panthers every year, uh, Brandon <laughs> Zilstra. Yes, <laughs> So now Zilstra is in Carolina, and uh, the Vikings are left just with Davion Davis um, on the practice squad. But since we brought up cornerbacks, they they signed Mark or they trade for Mark Fields. W what can you tell us uh, about Mark Fields? Uh, he actually, you know, if you read off his scouting report, it's a lot like Chris Boyd. I mean, he doesn't have the size; he's five ten, 
and he ran a, a 4.37 at the combine. So uh, he's got a lot of speed and a lot of upside. You know, he could profile as, as a nickel corner, I think, uh, in, in, in an NFL prior to Pete Carroll kind of revolutionizing the position. You know, you'd see him as an outside corner, too. He has a lot of experience there. Um, you know, he fits the profile of a Vikings cornerback. You know, a while ago I did a piece on kind of what the thresholds are what the Vikings look at at cornerback, and he matches them. Um, so he's he's a, a very athletically gifted cornerback, but similar to Chris Boyd, he's technically very raw. He doesn't have as much technique at the position that would make you comfortable kind of putting him out there on the field. His last preseason showing was fairly abysmal. Uh, you know, he had three <laughs> penalties, plus he got hurtled by a quarterback, which, you know... He does sound a lot like Chris Boyd. <laughs> yeah, in in And, in, uh, you know, there there's a... You know, I was talking to some people who were covering him in Kansas City, and he had trouble kind of learning his assignments, which, again, sounds a lot like Chris Boyd. So uh, so what are the pros with him? Well, I mean, he's, he's incredibly fast. I mean, that 4-3-7 is, is, is got to be appealing. Uh, he does have good instincts, and sometimes it's difficult to kind of parse between a player that has poor technique but good instincts, but he's got a good feel for when the ball's arriving, and he, and he does uh, you know, tend to be coachable. The people at Clemson have, have very positive things to say about him. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's a developmental option. I mean, Zimmer, even in today's presser, uh, talked about kind of the long-term uh, prognostication for, uh, you know, Chris Boyd and Mark Fields. And I think by talking about that, he also kind of told us, maybe don't expect to see them on the field anytime soon. His quote was, you know, rather interesting in terms of, yeah, I think they both can be good corners somewhere down the road. Emphasis right. on somewhere <laughs> down the road. Uh, the Vikings, you know, obviously have these issues at cornerback, though. I think it's worth noting that as long as Xavier Rhodes and Trey Waynes can stay healthy, same for Mackenzie Alexander, uh, with Mike Hughes coming back, they've actually got uh, a pretty decent group of, of four top corners. And then, of course, eventually down the line, Holton Hill returns. But if there's an injury to, say, Xavier Rhodes, week one, how concerned would you be? Tremendously concerned. Um, you know, I even got into an argument on Twitter today, which, I mean... I you? No. Yeah, right. Um, but, uh, you know, hey, Marcus Sherrills is available. And someone was like, well, I wouldn't want him. He's a, he's a terrible cornerback. And while you wouldn't want him starting, I, I mean, he's 5'8", right? I mean, he's <laughs> just a little bit taller than me. Uh, <laughs> Look at us throwing shade at 5'8", right. people. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's he's not, you know, your ideal starting quarter. I would trust him more than I would trust Chris Boyd or Mark Fields out there uh, in week one. Uh, just because, uh, you know, he not only has familiarity with the system, but, you know, his floor is, I think, a lot higher than the floors of those two players who who had a lot of experience getting burned in camp. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's how bad it is that I, you know, I saw Marcus <laughs> Sherrill was available and was kind of, like, interested. So, um, yeah, if if uh, if Xavier Rhodes, who uh, was only available for about 86% of the snaps last year, you know, gets hurt at some point in the game, which seems pretty likely given kind of his injury history, you know, the Vikings don't really have a lot of options to kind of shore that up, especially because Rhodes, I mean, you kind of rather uh, have to deal with a Waynes injury, even if, if Waynes has been playing better as of late, because Waynes is following the number two. You know, if Rhodes goes out and then you have to figure out what you're doing with, you know, who's shadowing who or who's playing what side, you know, immediately that open, it opens up, you know, Julio, who's going to be 
the right. week one <laughs> shadow for Xavier Rhodes. Antonio Brown in week three, Adams in week two. It's not exactly an easy slate uh, for the Vikings, especially for their top corners. Let's talk now about special teams because this is the Minnesota Vikings, and so uh, <laughs> such things are are deemed necessary. And and frankly, you know, lots of drama going into cutdown day. The Vikings keep Dan Bailey as their kicker, which probably was no surprise uh, given the way that he played in Buffalo in the fourth preseason game. A little bit more of a surprise. What is something that you predicted? I did not. The Vikings cut ties with Corey Vedvik. Uh, the kicker slash punter that they traded a fifth round pick for. What are your takeaways of uh, that whole situation? Do, is it good that they, you know, didn't deal with the sunk cost and kept him around because of the fifth round pick? Should they have given him more of a chance? What, what do you think of that whole situation? I think the Vikings. This this sounds so bizarre. I think the Vikings basically made the right decision at every point in this process involving Corey Vedvik. It's, it, Isn't that such an amazing thing to think about? Like They gave up a fifth round pick three weeks ago, then effectively cut ties with them. And when you look at it day by day, it's hard to really fault anything that happened in that line. Right. Because I mean, the, the context here is that Dan Bailey was missing at least one kick, if not more, every single day of practice. Which is so remarkable to think yeah. about. Fifth most accurate kicker in, right. in history. Kick goes six for six. <laughs> and With many of them inside 40. Yeah, in, like some, some days all of them. Right. right? It was just incredible. <laughs> uh, and then you also see, you know, maybe the punter is struggling a little bit. They were never really super happy with Matt Weil. They only grabbed him to get rid of Ryan Quigley. <laughs> uh, who they only grabbed in this to get perpetual cycle, right? Lock, right. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you, you see struggles there. You see that a kicker is available. You saw that, you know, he killed it in last year's preseason. He made every kick in in the Jaguars game uh, for the Ravens. He comes from a program that has a program as if they're a college school <laughs> that, that has put out kicker after kicker after kicker. Billy Cundiff, Justin yeah. Tucker. If Will there were ever a Steve program, Oshka. it's that. Yeah. yeah, they just churn out these kickers that succeed in the NFL. So with all of that information in mind, and you know, presuming that Marlon Maloof is right to trust his friends in Baltimore, trading a fifth-round pick for a kicker that you suspect to be very good is a good move. Mm-hmm. The, the, the amount of value you can extract from a, a good kicker or a good punter is actually pretty high. I think it's a lot higher than people give it credit for. Well, what is that? I saw you wrote about it a little bit in Monday's takeaways, but can you just shed some light on how valuable a good kicker or a good punter actually is? Yeah, if you compare you know, the best kicker in the league, say you know, maybe last year or two years ago it might have been Stephen Guskowski, maybe it's Matt Bryant, who the Falcons just re-signed, um, and, or, the, or the top punter, someone like a Johnny Hecker or Michael Dixon, um, and compare them to kind of the bottom uh, replacement level kicker or punter. So whoever's playing for the Vikings, uh, <laughs> you end up you end up uh, generating about thirty more points of value over the course of the year, as measured by like field position and all that. Uh, that you know you don't typically get that from a fifth round pick because not all of them are you know Stephon Diggs. Some of them are Colby Dawson, <laughs> and so you, you or, or like or Michael Cameron Curry. Smith even right yeah and so. To get 30 points a year from one position is well worth a fifth-round pick, as long as you know right, that that's what you're getting. And the Vikings suspected that that was a possibility, kind of given the history and the context of where he's coming from. So they trade for him. I thought that made a ton of sense. They're trying to figure out what he's kind of best at. If he's an improvement at one of those positions, it's worth it. And then, through the magic of competition, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Dan Bailey starts nailing every kick in practice. Matt Weil starts putting up better hang time. Not that it helped him. Uh, he, end, he ends up punting it further, uh, and Corey Vedvik falls apart. He can't make any kicks in preseason games. 
except for extra points. Um, you know, his punts, you know, he, he, he had something like an average of four seconds, 4.04 seconds of hang time against Seattle, which is just, a, because on the other side, they've got one of the guys I just named, Michael Dixon, right? right? And so you just to see that Stark difference. Yeah, is incredible. And so uh, they made the right move to move on from him. And, you know, I thought, hey, maybe, you know, he could be a practice squad guy if he falls, uh, you know, through the waiver process, which I suspect he wouldn't. But, you know, I, I put him on our, our practice squad prediction. Yep. The Vikings reportedly were interested in putting him on the practice squad, and someone else picked him up. So I, they made the right decision at every point in the process, and they just kind of got burned. I mean, all NFL decisions are basically playing risk versus probability. And, you know, they played the odds, and the odds didn't help. Yeah. We probably should have gone back and, and totaled up our 53-man projections and, and <laughs> looked at who won where and who did well where. You did well with uh, the four wide receivers. I had the two quarterbacks. Obviously, you know, fans know by now the Vikings did cut Kyle Sloter. Kyle Sloter moved on to go to the Arizona Cardinals practice squad, which, you know, puts him sort of in a fascinating quarterback room where he's now right. working with Cliff Kingsbury and, and Kyler Murray, the number one overall pick. But uh, Mike Zimmer again stressed on Monday in his press conference that we wanted a backup quarterback who is essentially going to do backup quarterback things was basically how he phrased it. What did you take away from that? Yeah, I haven't heard any other coach in the NFL be as clear about a cut <laughs> as as Mike Zimmer was about Kyle Slaughter in not so many words. I suppose maybe later when he talked about Laquan Treadwell. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he, so he says... Uh, after the second or third preseason game, you know, that, you know, he's making the wrong calls, you know, he can't figure, he can't get the clock right, he wasn't putting the team in the right formations. Then he says, kind of after a practice, something very similar, and now he says, you know, we need somebody who can win on the whiteboard. Uh, and, and, and that's, I think, a really underrated aspect of being a back quarterback, especially if you're only going to go with two quarterbacks, is that the person on the sideline is going over the photos of the deal. Like they take Almost a second field. coach. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, they're part of the game plan. They're part of in-game adjustments. They are a critical tool for quarterbacks to kind of help evaluate on the field. Just listen to Peyton Manning talk about Jim Sorge, of all mm-hmm. people, and how important having that backup quarterback there, even if it's someone less experienced than you, uh, just helping you on the sideline and kind of helping you parse through all the details of everything that's happening. Gary Kubiak once did that. Um, right, yeah. A lot of people who end up going on to be great coaches. Jeff Peterson. You know, right. I heard yeah. he's won a thing or two, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, backup Not quarterback. the Vikings fans would know. But. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, Jim Harbaugh. Uh, yeah. You know, it, backup quarterbacks become coaches for a reason. Uh, Frank Reich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, wow. Uh, they, it's because that's what they're doing. And if you can't get somebody who's great at the whiteboard, who's great at instantly kind of processing what's happening and figuring out what the offense needs to do at a moment's notice, then uh, you're taking up roster space. Yeah. Let's move to the lines where I think at what one point in time, both of us probably thought that the Vikings would keep nine offensive linemen and nine defensive linemen. Instead, uh, they bulk up there and keep 10 at each spot. So Ole Udo gets uh, a spot on the 53-man roster, which is you know a really cool story coming from Ewan, um, a pretty raw player, but a guy with a lot of size. The Vikings saw at the Senior Bowl, worked with him at the East-West Shrine game. That's how they first kind of got onto him and started doing their homework on him. Uh, they cut Aviante Collins, who you know unfortunately was looking very good, but dealt with some injuries at the beginning of training camp and. Uh, that opens up a spot for Dakota Dozier, who, you know, looked pretty good as he moved back and forth between guard and later tackle. 
What did you make of what the Vikings did with their offensive line first? And then after that, I'm going to ask you about their starters. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, it, it does make some sense. I mean, I had them keeping Collins and then putting Udo on the practice squad uh, as opposed to vice versa, because I think Collins ended up on the Vikings practice squad. Right. Um, which, I mean, I guess same difference, right? Because it, you're just going to promote one of them if somebody gets injured. So uh, that that all makes sense to me. I thought that Udo was, was vastly kind of outperforming his expectations, even for a seventh round pick. Uh, and, uh, and, and he was playing kind of dominantly, you know, against, you know, third string defenses, which is what his job is at that point. Um, so yeah, he's raw. He's got a lot of work to do, but I think he's kind of ahead of, of where he expected his development curve to be. So I think that that's really great for him. Um, but they do have some pretty high value players too. You mentioned Dakota Dozier, who's got a lot of versatility. Um, you know, he played left tackle pretty well in camp for most of the preseason. He all, he did all right when he was playing left tackle. Uh, and then uh, at left guard, he's got you know capability and, and history there. Uh, Brett Jones is a starting quality player on their on uh, as a backup, which is an enviable position I think for all thirty two teams. When was the last time the Vikings had that on the offensive right, line? Exactly. Uh, so and, and he has had just an incredible offseason. Brett Jones I think uh, ended up being one of PFF's top players for the Vikings this year, but also just from what I've been able to see in practice and what I've been looking for in the preseason, he's been pretty dominant. Uh, and so, you know, it's great to have him. And then that gives you, because you've got Dozier and because you've got Jones, um, you know, that gives you the luxury of having a couple of developmental options like Samia, like Udo, that you can kind of bring them along slowly. Yeah, you mentioned watching Brett Jones in practice. One of the most interesting things that I think you put together this offseason was sort of a win rate uh, for the offensive and defensive linemen. How did this come together? What, what did that information show? How did you even put together the adjusted win rate for these <laughs> players? Uh, I'm fascinated by all of it. Yeah, so uh, I've been keeping track of when they do the one-on-one drills, you know, who wins and who loses. And that's obviously subjective. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll get, you know, a little bit wrong here or there. Although, you know, if, if, if one of them wins, they usually are very vocal about it. So I <laughs> Same with the coaches. Right, yeah. And so, uh, you know, when, when that happens, it's usually it's almost always a pass rushing drill. And it's not, you know, completely analogous to what happens in games because you don't have any help and you have a lot more space. So it's kind of biased towards the defense. But it gives you a really good clue into just who's genuinely just good and, and who's struggling. Uh, and I, I've kept track of it over the years. And it is tracked really well with regular season performance. Like, it was a good indication that, you know, 2013 Matt Khalil probably wasn't going to be able to put it all together. Uh, and uh, and it was a good indication that 2013 Brandon Fusco was, right? That he was going to, you know, kind of emerge kind of from out of nowhere. He had a really good set of, of one-on-ones over the course of training camp. So I log all of that. You get a win rate out of that. That's fine. But, you know, if you win against the third string, you know, defensive or offensive line, that's a lot different than winning against Daniel Hunter. Right. right. Well, which your numbers show, which is, I think, my favorite part of what you put together in Monday's story on The Athletic, is that the first column is just the true win rate. How often did Riley Reef win? But then you adjust it for, say, going against Daniel Hunter, which Riley Reef has to do plenty, and the numbers are drastically different. Uh, I guess, does that speak to how good Daniel Hunter was, and, and how did you put all that together? Yeah, so it's it, it's a it's a mathematical process just called simple rating system, and what it does is it takes uh, your win rate and subtracts it from the average win rate of your opponent for each individual rep. And so, you know, if your win rate is is sixty percent, uh, or if you, you if you win against your opponent, it's one hundred percent. So one minus your opponent wins sixty percent of the reps. 0.6, So now your score is plus point four, right? And then you do that for everybody, and then. 
that's your new win rate. And now you do it again and again and again, and it's iterative, and it, and it keeps on doing it through like 100 different calculations. Excel does it instantly for me, so that's nice. <laughs> um, but it, it's it's how you know Pro Football Reference generates their offensive rating, defensive rating system is that it, it takes your, you against your opponents, and then your opponents against their opponents, and then against their opponents, and on and on and on. And what's nice is that because you've got players like Jaleel Johnson, who's going to play up against the first team and the third team, and then you've got players like Everson Griffin, you know, who will occasionally be able to play against someone like a Rashad Hill or whatever, you've got a good cross-section of everybody playing against everybody. They're all linked. And from there, you can create an opponent-adjusted win rate. And so that's why uh, Riley Reef, who only won 37% of his reps in one-on-ones or something like that, 37 and a half, um, he ends up with like a 70-odd percent adjusted win rate because Everson Griffin beat everybody who wasn't Riley Reef. And Daniel <laughs> right. Hunter beat everybody who wasn't Brian O'Neill on every single rep. And so what do you do then? Any win against those two looks pretty good. Right. So that's how you create the adjusted win rate. And I, I found that that tracks obviously even better with kind of predicting what regular season performance looks like. Mm-hmm. And I want to stick with the interior of the offensive line there, because that's where the Vikings had their most issues last year. They tried to address it. They signed Klein. They draft Bradbury. That moves Elfine over to left guard. Elfine, of course, had a pretty good rookie season, fell off last year after a couple of surgeries, and now as he moves to a new position from center to guard, uh, there's a lot of questions. So between Bradbury, Elfline, and Quine, what did the numbers show of all three? What were your takeaways of them? And who of those three would you be most concerned about entering the season? Yeah, well, first I was just surprised with Josh Klein. You know, he's somebody who's coming off of a bad season in Tennessee. They cut him for a reason. The Vikings were able to pick him up essentially for a song. Uh, and, and he's been great. You know, he's been great on one-on-ones. I think he's been really great in the preseason. You know, he's been doing really good stuff that I, I kind of just didn't expect to see. So that was like a very positive surprise. Uh, for me, I'm concerned about Pat Elfline. Um, you know, he's been losing a lot of one-on-ones. And the thing is, a center, they're going to lose a lot because they're not expect- They're the smallest players in the offensive line. They're not expected to go up against nose tackles one-on-one. They almost always have help. It's just that, that football is designed that way. You've got five off- uh, offensive linemen, four defensive linemen. Uh, and so centers don't usually have to win that many one-on-ones to be good. Garrett Bradbury won fewer than, I think, 50% in even in adjusted win rate just because hmm. You know, that's not what you expect from a center, and that's fine. But Elfline is playing like a center, but at guard. <laughs> and that's a huge problem because he will have to take on people like Aaron Donald one-on-one Yikes. without help. Uh, whereas, you know, you can always find help if you're going up against, um, you know, Linval Joseph or Damon Harrison or whoever's at nose tackle because that's the way defensive de- uh, schemes are designed. So I-, I saw that, you know, Elfline kind of lose a lot against Mata Afa, against Holmes, against Johnson. Uh, and then in the final days of camp when Shamar Stefan was taking some of those individual reps against Stefan too. Uh, and then we saw that translated into preseason games where we saw, I think, a lot of concern from him there. Right. As we wrap up with looking at the Vikings 53-man roster entering with week one, I want to get into the biggest surprises of the 53-man roster. Uh, for me, I think it was linebackers. For a long time, I did think that they were going to only keep five linebackers, but Mike Zimmer is a very honest coach, and the more I heard from him and listened to him, the more I thought they were going to keep six linebackers. He kept saying over and over how much he liked the depth that they had there. Quiet, as you mentioned uh, in previous podcasts and articles, had a very strong preseason. Uh, Cameron Smith was getting reps with the second-team defense. Um Devontae Downs even was looking pretty good. So I was rather surprised. It does make sense when you look at the construction of the roster with the fact that they wanted to keep both Udo and Watts, uh, that they wanted six cornerbacks, that they were going to have to 
give up, you know, a roster spot somewhere. And so it makes sense that it was at linebackers. But it did surprise me that they only kept five linebackers instead of six. For you, what was maybe your biggest surprise upon looking at the 53-man roster? Yeah, I mean, what's, you mentioned Zimmer's an honest coach. He basically told us that there were only going to be four or five receivers on the roster. Right. And that's what happened. So when it didn't happen at linebacker, yeah, I was, I was fairly shocked. I would say that linebacker was one of my biggest surprises. Cornerback, you know, I knew I was being bold by saying they were only going to have four cornerbacks. You know, you take you take those bold shots only every so often. You know, I... I <laughs> Ben Vic doing both kicking and punting, <laughs> which doesn't look quite as good now. Right. Um, I, I, to my credit, I moved back from that immediately. <laughs> well, doesn't look like you can do either. I love sentences that start to my credit. <laughs> it was a bold shot. I'll it give was, you that. Yeah, it was it a was bold fun. shot, and you that. backed away as soon as Vedvik didn't look good. Um, he was on the rush for like two days when I did that. Um, yeah, I, I think linebacker is one of the areas, but cornerback, I think, is 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 what's surprising to me because. Uh, Zimmer did not seem to have any particular affinity for Boyd when uh, he was talking about him uh, in the to the press or when he was uh, you know just coaching him on, uh, on the field. And so uh, for for Boyd to make the team, I think a it speaks a lot to his improvement over the course of the last couple of weeks. Uh, but b I just thought was an indication of, of how dire their depth problem is. And, you know, you, you need to have a certain number of cornerbacks because of how often they get injured and how important they are to the game. So uh, I think getting at, keeping Boyd and then also trading for a cornerback, which I, in my mind, if you told me they were trading for a cornerback, I would have said, well, that's how they get rid of Boyd. But they, they keep both. They, they trade for one and they, and, they, and they still keep Boyd. So that, to me, was the most surprising. Well, this all might be changing very rapidly because I have some breaking news that I want to get your thoughts on right now. Per Adam Schefter, one minute ago, (laughs) the Vikings are signing... Oh, no! (laughs) Josh Doxson, in your words, Laquan Treadwell with a few more yards. Uh, He, of course, has experience playing with Kirk Cousins in the past, but... As you look back to that draft that Laquan Treadwell came from, um, you know, it's easy to see now that he was not the only first round pick who struggled. So what are your um, takeaways as we both try to quickly tweet off um, some reaction to this news? What are your takeaways to the Vikings adding Josh Doxson? Uh, Well, I'll say first that Doxson's struggles, especially early on, were not the same as Treadwell's struggles because they were injury related. You know, he had difficulty... Uh, being able to practice at all. Uh, and so uh, the fact that uh, they're signing him, A, I, I just think is funny. But, <laughs> but B, uh, is another indication that they're they're pretty concerned with, uh, you know, how ready someone like Chad Beebe is to be wide receiver three and so on, which is not to say Dotson will immediately be that. Um, obviously, they didn't pick him up off of waivers because they'd have to pick up his first round rookie contract, which is something they're already dealing with with Laquan Treadwell, um, so they probably signed him for veteran minimum. Um, yeah, I <laughs> I don't have a lot of time to react to this. But I'll, I'm I'll glad say, that we got to just do this spur of the yeah. moment with you. But I'll, I'll say that um, you know he does have, I think, more prospects to be optimistic about, and maybe that's just because we haven't seen him every day in practice. Sure, like, right. You know, we have with Treadwell, but there's more there to be, I think, excited about, slash more to kind of excuse the reasons he's kind of underperformed over the past couple of years uh, than someone like Treadwell. 
You studied the NFL draft quite a bit. You have for a few years. I want to go back to the 2016 draft with you. Of course, that was the draft in which uh, Laquan Treadwell was drafted by the Vikings, number 23 overall uh, this weekend, cut by um, the Vikings as, as they admit that it just wasn't there. Mike Zimmer saying as much that he just didn't develop into what they hoped for. Now, that draft was an interesting one and did include a run on wide receivers as the Vikings were looking for one. Not all of them, of course, turned out. Uh, in fact, most <laughs> did not. Corey Coleman was drafted 15th by the Browns. Will Fuller, 21st by the Texans. Josh Doxson, 22nd. And then the fourth in that run, Laquan Treadwell, 23. Going back to the draft, though, where did you, when you were looking at those wide receivers, who did you like, who did you not like, um, and what did you make of that draft? Well, it's easy to say this now, but you can <laughs> double-check. Michael Thomas was my top receiver in that Okay. Draft, so I'll say that. Uh, Corey Coleman was somebody that I was not super excited about because in my mind, if you're a small receiver, you need to have uh, great hands. I, there's very few small receivers that don't have great hands. I think Golden Tate might be the, the only one. Uh, and so, uh, which is not to say, you know, someone like Wes Welker has amazing hands. His drop rate is fairly average. But uh, for the most part, if you're a smaller receiver, you need to have a couple of trump cards, and Corey Coleman didn't have that. So I wasn't huge on him. Laquan Treadwell, you know, the history of receivers who have run a 4.71 or slower uh, in, in at their pro day, much less at the combine, uh, is is very dismal. The only one of the only 1,000 yard receivers uh, to have done that is Kelvin Benjamin, and his career hasn't really panned out after you know what many thought was a, a pretty stellar rookie year. Even the even the receivers that people point to at their pro day did better than a 4.71. Uh, Jarvis Landry right now I think is the only one in the league. So I was not super high on him. I like Dotson. I didn't like him as much as I think a lot of people did. Uh, he's a high point receiver that despite going up against the, a lot of the same cornerbacks that uh, a lot of these Big 12 receivers did, I felt was more advantaged by the fact that he's going up against like a 5'10", 160-pound freshman from like Texas A&M. So him high-pointing wasn't as interesting to me as someone like a Mike Evans high-pointing, even though they played, I think, at the same time or at the same conference at the time. He just was somebody who, when he was going up against competition, I was not particularly... Uh, beholden to thinking would um, would translate. And then Will Fuller, the injury concerns were, were less of a problem for me. I thought uh, that his hands were a problem. So I am actually probably wrong about Fuller because the hands aren't the problem for him right now. It is the injury concerns. So uh, that is, the, you asked about one of the, the best takes, set of takes I've ever had. <laughs> Which I appreciate. Thank you. Yes. Well, that, that's going to cost you lunch tomorrow, but glad that we could do that. Uh, fun to have some breaking news on the show. To get back, though, to where we were going with things, uh, I want to ask you, since this is, you know, at long last, after a long training camp and after four preseason games, uh, this is a game week. And, and so the season opener is now six days away as the Vikings prepare to welcome the Atlanta Falcons to, to U.S. Bank Stadium. I want to ask you what you are most interested to see in the game. I think I'm fascinated to see more of how the Vikings utilize their offense. That, of course, has been the biggest storyline, you know, throughout training camp and, and the preseason. Uh, how many times, how, what percentage of the time is Kirk Cousins under center? How often are they running play action? How often is C.J. Ham in the game in a two uh, running back formation, how often is Irv Smith Jr. in the game? Do they occasionally go to three tight ends? I think it will be very interesting to track 
what exactly the Vikings do on offense now that this will be their first time uh, debuting this Stefanski slash Kubiak offense in a meaningful game. All of that said, what are you looking forward to seeing in the season opener? Um, yeah, all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I Sorry do. to take every single part of the <laughs> offense. I really made that one easy for you. Uh, I, I do want to see them throw down the field a little bit more often. I, I want to see what that kind of explosive offense is supposed to look like. We saw it in the preseason, especially for the first two games. Uh, and I, I want to see kind of if Diggs is going to have a more standard receiver role than he did last year. Because I think if you have Thielen and you have Diggs and they're doing the intermediate deep routes that they're really good at, you have the potential for a really exciting offense, just kind of no matter how uh, mellow you feel about the the quarterback. Because I think, you know, Cousins does do a good job throwing deep, and, and, and those are the things that they do well. So I want to see that. I want to see kind of how involved someone like Dalvin Cook is. And I want to see the rotation of the running backs. We're going to see Alexander Madison yeah, on the goal line a lot. That's a like good point. Predicted. Uh, are we going to see Mike Boone on the field maybe more than we thought? Or Amir, Amir Abdullah, uh, your guy, right? <laughs> uh, and then, you know, what's going to happen to kick and punt returner just because I feel like we still technically haven't gotten an answer to that yet. Yeah. As we begin to wrap up the show, uh, just looking ahead a little bit at this week, uh, I'm really excited about some of the content that we have coming to The Athletic. John Krasinski has a really cool Kevin Stefanski story coming on Wednesday. All the story on Dalvin Cook and Devontae Freeman on Thursday. Arif will have his full breakdown uh, of the game coming on Friday. But one other thing that I do want to get into with you, this weekend I went to dinner with Linval Joseph, which is an experience within itself. Uh, I, of course, let him order because that's what you do when you're with a 330-pound man who's at his favorite <laughs> restaurant. Uh, six different courses proceeded to show up, most of them fried. I did not feel like it was the healthiest meal I've ever had, but it was fun to talk to him about last season, about everything that he went through. It was a bit of a down season for him by you know most metrics. He's going to be 31 this season. Last season, though, he did deal with some injuries that lingered for most of it. He got into, uh, for the story that will be on The Athletic on Tuesday, um, the injuries that started in week six and really lasted the entire season. He had injuries to his toe, to his foot, to his right shoulder. The right shoulder required surgery, and that's why he missed OTA's mini camp, the start of training camp, all four preseason games. Um, so it was interesting to hear him open up a little bit about that. He said he is healthier than he was at any point last season and is looking for a big season. Um, but Arif, how many defensive tackles can still be good early into their 30s? And what do you make of um, Winval Joseph's season a year ago? Uh, defensive tackle is one of the positions that low-key ages very well. People always talk about you know, quarterbacks and specialists, they tend to age very well. I mean, you've got Tom Brady, he's like 45. Um, but uh, defensive tackles uh, who uh, operate at like a Pro Bowl level can continue doing that for a long time. I think Vikings fans remember Kevin Williams and Pat Williams. Pat Williams mostly retired just because he didn't want to keep on dealing with like the Star Labs, whatever it was, controversy <laughs> uh, involving the supplements and whether or not, you know, he could sue the league. Um, you know that so that was he probably could have played for another year or two and he was like 36 by the end or something like that Kevin Williams kept playing for a long time you know we see that with like Vince Wilfork and especially nose tackles where uh you know you, you can kind of rely on your strength um they tend to they tend to continue 
playing at a high level for a long time. So I think that you've got a better prognosis with someone like Linval Joseph, so long, of course, as they you know stay healthy, um, that you know, I, there've always been a lot of concerns about what will happen as this defense continues to age. And, you know, kind of Joseph is at the front of that curve because he's you know one of the oldest members of the defense, which is kind of weird to say. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he might continue playing at a high level for years to come. Yeah. Well, it was a lot of fun to do this show today in the midst of getting breaking news just after we talked about whether the Vikings would add a fifth wide receiver. Uh, that'll do it for the third episode of the Straight Cash Podcast. Thank you for sticking with us. If you're not an Athletic subscriber, you can do so for 40% off at theathletic.com slash straight cash. And if you like the show, please rate and review us. We'll be back later this week for a bonus episode only on the Athletic app. Thanks so much for listening.